Good morning, everybody. I hope that you're having an amazing Sunday so far. And I hope that you've been enjoying this series of lessons that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks. Last week, we, we had a very challenging lesson talking about the embracing the cross and what, what it really means and how it actually means that we're holding on to our life because when we do not embrace to the cross, we're actually already dead. And if we keep on holding on to that life, it's actually our death. And something that came to my mind for, for today just in relation to that was, was this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'm going to read from verse 19. And Moses says to the Israelites, I call the heavens and the earth to witness to you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live by loving the Lord your God, listening to his voice and clinging to him all your days. For he is your life and the length of your days. And you know, all my life, I kind of grew up thinking that this verse, even though it's in the Old Testament and it's a really interesting verse, was talking about, you know, eternal life and eternal death, spiritual life and spiritual death. You know, if I choose to follow God, if I choose to walk on his ways, then one day I'm going to live with him forever. And that Moses is giving the Israelites and giving us a choice to choose life and to choose like the hard life right now so that we can enjoy the good life one day. But reading more of the Jewish thought and understanding more of what Moses really meant, he, he's talking about choosing life as in right here, right now. They did not understand this choice of life and death, blessing and curse as a spiritual reality of one day happening when, when, when all of things end. They were thinking about it as very tangible, very practical, very experiential. So I just want to remind us that the, the, the choice of following Jesus, it's right here and right now, is choosing to live right here and right now. The other choices, even though we might not like to admit it, we're choosing death. But for today's lesson, we're going to go into a little bit more of detail of a scene that we might have been confused by in the past. Um, we've been looking at so many things that Jesus calls us to do and, and, and the cost that it, in, it, it takes and, and all of these different things. But today we're going to look at, at this trial scene and, and what it means for Jesus. You know, the sacrifice, like we know the story of Jesus on the cross, but what did it mean? And how do the Gospels narrate that scene and why do they narrate it that way? So for today, if you are ready, please grab your Bible and we're going to go to the book of John and we're going to spend literally all of our time reading this one story, this one conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And you might have read the story, you might have watched the movie, you might know what, what takes place, but do we really understand what's going on? The author of the Gospel of John is trying to tell us something throughout the entire book. It's trying to set, up, set for us a, a very important scene and it's reaching its climax. In this conversation, it's one of those climatic moments of the story, according to John. So for today, we're going to read this, this story. Not, no longer, we're going to talk about the cost and the call to follow him and his authority. We're going to talk about what that looks like for him. So I hope you're ready. We're going to look at John chapter 18 and I'm going to start reading from verse 28. It said they, and, and you know this is the, the priest, the ruling guys, Caiaphas and them, they were trying Jesus throughout the night. And it says in verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early. They themselves did not enter the praetorium so they would not become unclean so that they could eat Passover. 
put that on a shelf for now. We'll get to that later. Had they eaten Passover or are they going to eat Passover? Interesting question, right? Verse 29, it says, Therefore Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered, If he were an evildoer, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So they're basically telling Pilate, What are you talking about? This guy is obviously guilty. Otherwise, we wouldn't be bringing him, bringing him to you and bothering you with your time. Verse 31, it says, Then Pilate said to them, Well, take him and judge him yourselves by your law, by your Torah. Uh, the Judean leaders responded, we are not authorized to put anyone to death. You, you understand here, even though they have a law and a religious law, they don't have authority because they're under the oppression of Rome. So they know that if they execute somebody, the Roman authorities have to approve. They want to get this man killed so badly that they go and ask help from the guys that they consider their enemies. Think about that for a second and what all of that it means, like in, in the so sociological context, you know, verse 32, it says this happened so that the word of Jesus, that the word that Jesus spoke would be fulfilled, um, signifying the kind of death he was about to die. Verse 33, and here's where the conversation starts. Pilate went back into the praetorium. He called Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, are you saying this on your own? Or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? You, your own nation and your own ruling priest handed you over to me. What have you done? And I think it's a fair question. You know, Pilate has nothing to do with the Jews. He has no idea about their laws, their customs, their practices. I mean, for all that they know, being a Jew is being a pagan because you only believe in one God instead of believing in the many gods that that there are according to the Roman culture and the Roman religion. So actually the Jews and the Christians at that time were called atheists because they only believed in one God instead of believing in all the other gods. So Pilate is kind of confused. It's like, well, you must have done something really bad if your own people that you practice the same religion, have the same faith, are handing you over to me. Pilate is having a very kind of like confusing moment here. He's an authority and he has the uh, right to execute this guy. And they're asking him, hey, execute him for us because he's done something really bad. But he can't really find something bad that he's done. And here's where one of three things that we're going to learn in the conversation starts applying. And the first thing is we're going to learn about this word kingdom. Okay. And what do you think about when the word kingdom is presented. What comes to your mind? Is it a big castle with a big wall around it? Is it fortresses? Is it a big piece of land? What comes to your mind when you think of kingdom? A lot of soldiers, maybe um, power and authority. Uh, but what, what did come to mind to the, to the mind of Jesus is what we're going to read. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jewish leaders. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Okay, let's take a pause right here. That word kingdom, let's try to define it because it's a very big word full of baggage and meaning. And then I don't know what comes to your mind, but that word is made out of two words, king and dominion. So when, when a king has dominion, then he has a kingdom. He has to be able to rule and reign over people. The Greek word is the word basileia, and that word literally means the rule and reign of somebody in authority. 
So when, when we think of kingdom, we must not think of, especially when we think of the kingdom of God, we must not think of up there in the clouds. We must think of the rule and reign of God, the king, God, having dominion, kingdom, having dominion over who? Over people, maybe over the galaxies, the universe, the cosmos, the material, maybe having dominion over history over dominion over time. I mean, God is big and his kingdom is, is way, way bigger than what we can imagine. And definitely we as his people are part of his kingdom, but we do not constitute the entirety of his kingdom. But we must understand that his kingdom is not from here. Okay, and I know when we say that, the first picture that comes to our minds is like, hey, it's up there in the clouds, but that's not what Jesus means. He's saying it's not off here, it's not from here, but it's definitely for here. I hope I'm making sense. Just the fact that God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is not from, is not of this earth, is not of this world, does not mean it's not for this world. It absolutely is for this world, it's for this earth, it's for all of our lives, but it's not from here. Why? Because it does not rule, it does not reign, it does not operate by the same systems and ways that every other kingdom has before. And here's where we need to really put a lot of our Old Testament history back into our minds, a lot of our Bible knowledge back into our minds, because if we do not have all of that baggage, all of that information with us right now, we're totally going to misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a future kingdom that he's going to bring one day when we all go to heaven. He's talking about a kingdom, a rule and reign that is happening right here and right now, but that it operates by completely different rules. And every Jewish person, every person that knows the story of God, that knows the Bible, understands that there's these two narratives at play. A narrative that I like to call empire and a narrative that I like to call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of peace. And, and if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about it, I know the campus students will know what I'm talking about here. You can check one of those videos in our Rewired YouTube page talking about exile and talking about these two realities that this book presents us. It presents us the reality of the empire. Empire, what does that mean? It means those kingdoms that have rule and reign over people, but they do it by violent ways by unjust ways that oppress people and, and and if you look at the bible it constantly puts those empires at odds with the kingdom of god think about egypt or about babylon or about even israel itself when they became the oppressor and they didn't take care of the poor and the marginalized and god was not okay with that because his kingdom his kingdom of peace rules by a completely different set of guidelines his system is totally different. It does not operate by the system that wants to control and have power over people and induces fear and oppression over its people. It conduces its rule and reign by, by mercy and love and justice and restoration. And these two worldviews are constantly at odds in the story of the Bible. And when you reach Jesus, the stories, these two narratives, these two worldviews have been fighting amongst each other over and over and over again. And it's reaching its climatic point. And Jesus is saying, I am bringing the kingdom that is not of here, that is not from here. I'm bringing it to here, to this earth. I'm bringing it for this earth because from now on, it will no longer be that people rule by oppression, injustice, and violence. They will rule with grace and 
peace and mercy and justice. If you ever think that God does not care about what's happening in our world today, you're totally mistaken. He totally cares, but he's expecting you and me to care and do as much as he cares. If we see oppression and violence and injustice, we must stand up and do something about it because Jesus is bringing the kingdom, the rule and reign of justice, peace, restoration and grace, not violence. We do not set our authority through violence and and grabbing power. We set up our authority by humble, loving kindness and bringing justice and restoration, by bringing and having integrity in every aspect of our lives, by going to the people that are oppressed and standing up for them and taking their place so that they could be freed. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is the two worldviews at play. This is the scene that is happening right now. And that's why Jesus is telling him, if I was like you, Pilate, which, by the way, what does Pilate represent? A person in authority from Rome. And what does Rome represent? One of the biggest, most successful, quote unquote, systems because it ruled and reigned over an expanse of territory, right? Who could compete with Caesar? I mean, Caesar was even given the title son of God because they thought he was divine or he called himself divine because he ruled over all of these people. So Pilate in Rome represent the systems that are violent and unjust and oppressive. And Jesus is like, I'm not from here. My kingdom is not of here. If it were, we would be fighting like you. How do you guys make your kingdom bigger, Rome? You guys do it by violently taking over other people, by oppressing other people, by being unjust to other people, but not the kingdom of God. Jesus is very clear about that. And then Pilate answers him in verse 37. So are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I come to the world, so that I may testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And it's an incredibly important question, right? We wouldn't blame Pilate if he was a postmodern in the 21st century. That question is incredibly relevant to the day. What is truth? And how do, do we define truth? Can anybody have their own set of truth according to their experiences, circumstances, and biases? And if that was true, why would we be so offended when we see injustice and oppression happening? Because if truth is relative and nobody can tell you that there's such a thing as an absolute truth, then none of us can say that oppression and injustice and violence is wrong. It's just not our preference, but it's not wrong because truth is relative, right? But Jesus does not operate that way. Jesus believes and teaches that truth is not only absolute, it's able to be known. He actually calls truth himself a few chapters earlier in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person, a being that you and I can get to know. Second John tells us that we can know the truth. Truth is able to be known and verified because truth is a person. And truth is not only what Jesus is sent here for to do. Like he said, I, was, I came here to testify about the truth. Truth is what identifies us, what sets us apart. Truth is the weapon that we use, at least one of them. Because truth is not 
what Rome and Caesar and systems do today. If you think about it, what does Rome want you to know? Rome wants you to think that they're the best, even though they're oppressing some, not taking care of others, and elevating some to the highest places. Does it sound familiar, by the way? Does it sound at all like the world we live in today where there's a group of select few who have power and authority and that they shape truth to suit them and they give us these facts that are not real, but that they tell us this fact, that they tell us this news and we are supposed to just buy them and, and eat them and take them as if they were absolutely true. And then they tell us to believe that and follow that. But if that is truth, then it's totally misunderstood, right? Rome, the systems of the world, the empire of the world does not operate by truth. So what is the one weapon that disciples of Jesus, that the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of King of God, King Jesus can offer? It can offer truth. Truth that is absolute, that is fair, that is consistent, that it continuously looks to have integrity and righteousness. Truth is actually a weapon to our advantage not the weapon to oppress not the weapon to have violence but a weapon to converse to enlighten to free others this really good author his name is N.T. Wright he writes this about truth and he says truth is what happens when humans use words to reflect God's wise ordering of the world and so shine light into dark corners, bringing justice and mercy when it's badly needed. Truth is what people need to hear when they're depressed or anxious or afraid or absolutely taken away by everything that the news, the media, the people, the world around them keeps on selling to them as truth. Truth is what you and I needed to know when we heard the gospel for the first time and we knew that our lives were a mess and the cycle that we were going on was beyond repair and that we needed somebody outside of the cycle to come and rescue us out of it. Truth is what Jesus brings when he tells us that the world is full of darkness and he brings out his marvelous light. Truth is what King Jesus offers every single day of our life that you and I do not have to follow that habit, follow that thought pattern, follow that way and that that the ways that the world works, truth is what frees us. And that's why John tells us in John chapter 8, verse 32, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free if you know Jesus and the weapon that he has of truth, we can be free. When these kingdoms of the world, these empires are telling us that if we follow them, if we submit to them, if we go their way, they'll free us and give us peace. But actually they oppress us and rule us and control us. Jesus is actually offering us the truth that can free us. Free us from our messed up sinful habits. Free us from broken cycles of relationship. Free us from addictions and loneliness. Free us from sin and the slavery of sin that leads to death. Like we said last week, we are zombies, the living dead who do not know that they're dead until the truth of King Jesus comes to our lives and frees us to live and live truly and beautifully and powerfully. That's what Jesus offers. And that's what Pilate cannot possibly comprehend. What is truth? 
Truth is relative. Truth is whatever I come up with on my left sock because I'm in authority. And I tell you what truth is, Jesus. You don't tell me. And that's the attitude that I see so many people in our day and sometimes myself having against God. We do not let God define reality. We tell God what reality is like. And because of that way that we define reality, we don't know what truth is. The story continues. Verse 39. It was the custom of Pilate to release somebody at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. They shouted back, no, don't release this guy, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary, and you might know the story of Barabbas. He, he killed a lot of people. He was a salad, all of these revolutionary kinds of things. His name, Barabbas, actually means son of the father. And don't you think it's interesting that the son of the father goes free when the actual son of the father dies on behalf of the guilty? And don't you think that's exactly what truth is about and what the kingdom of God is about when innocent died in behalf of the guilty? That's when the weapon of truth is being displayed, not longer expressed with words, but displayed with actions. So Jesus says, I come here to reveal the truth and everybody that knows the truth will know me. And then he exemplifies the truth by saying, hey, I do not do my kingdom by violently oppressing and fighting with swords and fighting with weapons. I, I establish my kingdom by dying so that the guilty can go free. And then he does it right there in their faces. John is incredibly intentional in putting that piece of the story right there. The truth of God's kingdom is being demonstrated right there in front of you. Let's keep reading. We're going to verse chapter 19. It says, Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and dressed him up in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him saying, Hail, hail, King of the Jews, and slapping him over and over. Do you find this interesting? I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible what they're doing to Jesus as innocent man, a crown of thorns and bleeding off his head and they're slapping him and they're making fun of him. But don't you think it's ironic? Because they're trying to make fun of him, but Jesus is actually the king. So by making fun of him, they're actually confirming the truth that they don't know. They're saying, hail, hail, king. They're putting him a robe that kings wear. He has a crown, not the crown that you and I expect him to wear, but the crown that he needs to wear in order for us to really be free. This is ironically intentional. Because John is trying to tell us, hey, Jesus is not losing here. It might look like he's losing. It might look like he's getting killed. But Jesus is actually being enthroned right now. Jesus is actually becoming the king he was always meant to be. Let's keep reading. Pilate came out again and he said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, dressed like a king, Behold the man, Pilate said, when the ruling priests and officers saw him, yelled out, execute him, execute him. Think about how much hatred you must have towards somebody to want him killed. Pilate said to them, you take him and you execute him because I find no guilt against him. The Jewish leader said, we have a law. And according to this law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. 
Remember what I said earlier? Caesars claim to be the son of God. They claim to be divine. So this puts another gear in Pilate's head, in Pilate's conversation. First, he has no idea what he means by kingdom because the way that Jesus' kingdom works is totally different than the way the other kingdoms work. And now they ask a conversation about truth and he's like, I don't get truth. And now he's going to have a conversation about authority because according to Romans, only Caesar is the son of God. Let's keep reading. <laughs> when Pilate heard this word that Jesus is the son of God or called himself the son of God, he, came even, he became even more fearful. He went to the praetorium again. He went back to his lounge to chat and said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you're not even speaking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. We spoke about kingdom. We spoke about truth. And now we're going to speak about power. The world, Rome, Pilate included, all thought that power meant having authority, meant having right over somebody, meant that if I say something, you do it. That's the way I control a nation. That's the way I get rich. That's the way I get my way, by telling you what to do. And the only way that I know how to do that is by causing you to fear or oppressing you or absolutely ruling over you in whatever way that I can. And that's the way our world works. It promises us freedom, freedom, but it actually we are controlled over and over and over again by all of these enticing things that are all there for us. We are not free. We're actually slaves to sin is what the Bible teaches. All of these habits, all of these things we consume, all of these addictions, all of these ways, we actually have no authority. We have given up that authority away. And we think that we're free. And Pilate thought the same thing. Pilate thought, like, I have the authority. You have no authority. We have a love for power that consumes us. And whatever way, whatever way we can come to that power, whatever way we can attain that power, that's why we want to be the boss. That's why we want to be in charge. That's why we want to own our own stuff, to have power and authority, to say what I want to say and do it when I want to do it because I choose to. That's what we think freedom is. And that's why we strive and love and love power. And Caesar and Pilate were just the same. They had a love for power and they thought that what power meant to have authority and rights over other people. <sighs> but Jesus, man, Jesus is awesome. In verse 11, he says, you have no authority over me. You have no power over me. If, if you do have, it's actually been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed you over to me is in greater sin. He's talking about the Judean leaders who gave him to him. Pilate tried to let him go after this. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And man, they're getting political here. They're saying, dude, we are friends of Caesar's. We are allegiant to Caesar. You are not if you free Jesus. Because obviously, somebody that claims to be son of God, to be king like Caesar's would, is kind of declaring war against or rebellion against this empire, right? So Pilate is pretty concerned about his allegiance and his loyalty right now. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat in a place 
uh, in place that called the stone pavement been in, Amer in Aramaic Gabatha. It was the day of preparation for Passover, about the sixth hour. Let's bring that thing from the shelf very quickly. I know that we have been taught or we know or we kind of assume that Jesus had a Passover meal with his disciples right before he was crucified and that he therefore had, um, had a Passover meal, right? But that doesn't add up with the Gospel of John. John told us that they were preparing for Passover. The day of preparation is the day where people take all the leaven out of their house so that they can have a Passover meal together the next day. And think about it, it actually makes way more sense that Jesus not didn't have the Passover meal. He had something along those lines because Passover is a week-long festival. But that actual Passover happened on the day that he was crucified, right? On the day that he died, on the day that he, the lamb is slaughtered. I, I mean, just think about it. Um, verse 15 uh, Actually, let me read verse 14 again. It was the day of preparation for Passover, about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, behold your king. They shouted back, take him away, take him away, execute him. Pilate said, should I execute your king? Pilate is getting very personal. He's your king. Jews, he's your king. And the ruling priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. This is a massive deal. According to all of Israel, Old Testament history, there's no king but God. And every Jewish person understands that only God is king. Only God reigns. No matter who is on the throne here physically, God is ruling over them. But right here, right now, when they have the opportunity to claim their loyalty and their allegiance to Jesus, they say, nope, nope, no. The only king we have is not God, is Caesar. The dramatic narratives, and they've chosen their allegiance. They're not faithful to the kingdom of God and peace, the King Jesus. They're allegiant and faithful to the empire of violence, mistrust, injustice of Caesar and Rome and those worldly systems. Then they took, finally Jesus hands them over, hands Jesus over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus. He went out carrying his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified and with him two others and on each side and Jesus in between them. Pilate wrote a sign and put down an execution stake. It was written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And we're going to stop right there because if we keep going, this lesson could take forever long. And I'm sorry that I'm carrying you and I still have your attention. I hope I still have your attention for so long. But hear me out here. Jesus, in his conversation with authority, he shows that he does not have a love for power. Jesus does not love power. Jesus doesn't want to rule and reign over us with oppression, violence, and injustice. He's not trying everything he can so that he can rule over us because he wants to control us. Jesus does not operate like Caesar and Pilate and all the worldly systems out there in that day and in our day. Jesus does not love power. But the power that Jesus holds is the power of sacrificial, loyal love. Not the love for power, but the power of love. And that that is the reality of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace that rules with justice and mercy and grace. And that its two weapons are truth expressed in words and expressed in the reality of dying for the innocent, 
because that is the power of love. Jesus said, this is how I'm going to establish my kingdom with truth and love. And I don't know if you remember the book of John, in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is full of grace and full of truth, full of love, full of truth. Jesus establishing the rule and reign that he has, not with violence, not with oppression, not with lies, not with anything else, but truth and love and if you and I are ever going to follow this king we gotta follow him the exact same way expressing truth living it out and dying on behalf of the innocent and I know I'm talking about death again but if we do not get this church we are not following Jesus to the way that he's calling us to love according to John 3 verse 16 for this is the love of God, right? That he loved us so much that what did he do? He sent his son to do what? To die on behalf of the innocent. The behalf of the guilty, sorry. The innocent dying on behalf of the guilty just like he did with Barabbas. Just like he does with you and me. And if you and I are ever going to follow this king, we gotta be willing to be blamed and shouted and punished and even willing to die on behalf of the guilty. Because that's how we establish the kingdom. Not with violence, not with weapons, not with more shouting and more oppression, but with the love, the power of love, the sacrificial, loyal love that dies on behalf of the innocent. And I'm going to end with this thing. We need to reconsider, and I'm going to be punny. We're going to have to rewire our understanding of the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he was not losing. He was not being defeated. He was not going there just to die on behalf of all of us who are guilty so we could walk freely. Jesus knew and understood and in his conversation with Pilate expressed that Jesus is actually winning. You know, we can have this idea that Jesus died because he had to shame, he had to. But when he rose victorious, then he won and we're finally free. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus actually won at the cross. It is at the cross when everything happens, when everything is culminating, when Jesus says the words, it is finished. And the resurrection is just the immediate obvious consequence of what happens when you defeat the enemy and the enemy being Satan, but the final enemy being death. Death could not hold Jesus back because he lives and reigns with power, the power of love, the power of love of dying for the innocent. He reigns with truth, the truth that we bear witness as his image bearers in everything we do and everything we say. That's the rule and reign of God. Jesus was not walking to his defeat. Jesus was walking to his victory. And the crown that he wears on his head is the crown of an enthroned king. You need to picture Jesus carrying his cross, not as carrying his cross to a defeat, but carrying his cross to the moment. I don't know if you've seen the pictures when, or the, those, those videos or those cartoons where the little boy is finally going to become a king and he enters in this long robe and everybody puts the trumpets and everybody's singing. That's what Jesus is doing, carrying the cross. He's on that long robe. He has the purple thing. He has the crown. He's about to be enthroned at the cross. Jesus won. And if you do not believe me, I'm just going to finish with this one verse. I'm so sorry that I'm taking so long, but please, please listen to this because we need to get this. In Colossians chapter 2, 
Paul puts the cross this way. Verse 14, he wiped out the handwritten records of death which decreased against us, which was hostile to us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. After disarming the principalities and the powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross, not at resurrection, in the cross. Jesus, what he did is grab the rulers, the authorities, the systems, and slaughter them with the love and self-sacrificing obedience, with the truth at cross victory. You know, the Bible describes in the books of the prophets that all of the nations will come to the holy mountain Zion. Golgotha is the new Zion. It's the hill where all the nations are gathered. At the cross, he slaughters all of our enemies with his power of love, with the truth that he bears. At the cross, he nails all of our sins and all of our deaths and everything that stands against us. At the cross, Jesus wins. The cross is the enthronement of Jesus, not the defeat of Jesus. The resurrection is just the immediate natural consequence and if Jesus raised from the dead all of us who follow him to that death like we talked last week we will be raised with him to a new life not one day when we go to heaven but right here and right now we've been freed by this love we've been freed by this power we've been freed by this king that rules and reigns with a totally different set of guidelines and rules that any other system and empire has the kingdom of God wins over empire and it wins with truth and love. Will you and I follow this king?